Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supply, episode 374. So we are now in the first days of the month of Cheshvan, which is essentially entering into the more normal routine of life after the rich holiday season of month of Tishrei, the central nervous system of Tishrei. So we will begin by speaking about that and the relevance to our lives and the chassidus applied, applying chassidus to this time of the year and helping us deal with the challenges, the opportunities, and everything that comes our way in life. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Yomen ben Menuchelana, Miriam bas Chayesara, and Yikusil ben Leir Rochel and Rochel bas Liba Farkash. Dedicated by Pinchas Todras ben Miriam and Sarah bas Rochel Altes. So, as we discussed last week, Cheshvan, full name called Mar Cheshvan, one of the reasons Mar, from the word Mar, which means bitter, the bitterness of moving from a very spiritually rich season into somewhat of a dry season without any holidays, but it's only a bitterness meant to be elevated so we, through our effort, can transform and saturate this month with all the energy we received. But mar also means, from the, word, from the word mar midli, like a drop, because it's referring to the drop of water, which is the rain season that begins in this month, as we prayed for, Shemini Atzeres. And we'll soon talk about Zion Cheshvan, the seventh of Cheshvan, when the actual prayer begins in Eretz Yisrael. So water, a drop of water, is reflects that, uh, that even though hazerim bedimo, that it may come from some bitterness that we sow, with tears, but the tears become drops of water that we reap with joy. And there's two types of joy. There's a joy that comes initially, and there's a joy that sometimes comes from a vacuum where you may not feel openly a revealed state, and this can be in our personal lives where we're not feeling inspired or in any way empowered. We have our down moments, but know every down moment can serve as a catalyst and a springboard for reaching much greater heights. It's one of the reasons that says that by Tashlich, which is Rosh Hashanah, we throw our transgressions into the water. Why don't we burn them? Burning our pitera is the best way to uh, destroy any negative thing. Burning our piyalach is the way you would eliminate something. Throwing it into water is not necessarily total elimination. Because the goal is not elimination, the goal is transformation. And water is always a transformer. It is able to take something and make things grow. So we throw it in water to obliterate the negative part and to extract the positive part. Like any type of cleansing. The marble that we read about yesterday in the Torah is a cleanser. It was not meant to total annihilation. And the proof is that the world was rebuilt with Adam and his, with Noach and his family. And then afterwards... Also, all the animals that he brought on board. So we rebuild a new world. So it's more of a cleanser to get rid of the negative. Like when you wash something, you get rid of the dirt in order to preserve that which is holy and, and, and valuable and life-producing. 
the expression is, you throw out the peel, klipose zorak, and you take and you, uh, you, you consume and you benefit from the fruit. So in that sense, Cheshven is actually a transformative month, and that's our goal, that even when there's a moment that we don't feel inspired, where we feel somewhat a setback even, we see that as actually an opportunity to create even more power. When the Rebbe had his heart attack in 1977, so one of the lessons that we learned from then was when the Rebbe asked the doctor, where does the energy, when we draw blood with a needle, where does it come from? Is it the needle that's drawing the blood or the vacuum? And the doctor, of course, said the vacuum. And the Rebbe's lesson was that the vacuum actually can create even more energy and more power. Which means when, when the seat is empty, it causes us to remember the one that sat in that seat. So any void and vacuum has to be seen as a process that only leads to greater growth. So in that context, um, someone writes, at what point is it customary to stop wishing people a happy new year? I was outside 770, Rabbi Jacobson, and I saw an old friend and wished him a happy new year. Someone overheard me and rudely interjected that since it's already Cheshwin, we don't say Ksiv anymore. I told the rude man that I can wish my friend a happy new year whenever I want, and he should please mind his own business. He got angry and chastised me. So in the heat of the moment, I tried to offset his rudeness by wishing him a happy new year. <laughs> happy new year too. Instead, he covered his ears and ran away. Rabbi Jacobson, what is your opinion on this matter? P.S., even if it's after Tishrei, I want to take this opportunity to wish you a happy new year. It's, uh, I'm sad to hear a person feel, feel that way, <laughs> to close his ears and run away and chastise. Even if it's correct, Sivach is the blessing we say before Rosh Hashanah, and then there's Gmach Simatev and different expressions, but it's not something a person has to have such a uh, radical reaction. So yes, there are different ways we say things. Because Rosh Hashanah is the day when when it's written into the, to the book of life, when we're written into the book of life. Rahim Kippur is Gmach Simatev. There's Gmartev and Piskatov. There's many different expressions. So you're correct in saying it's always good to greet somebody. And we go into the new year, we say a good Giben Shtyar. That would be an expression. I don't know if there's a black and white statement. Yes, it's more appropriate at the beginning of Tishrei. But again, I don't see a great crime in doing it. It's just like you're not going to wish somebody happy Hanukkah on Pesach or happy Hanukkah on Tishrei. So everything has its time. But the way to approach it is that the new year, first of all, life is constantly being renewed. So it's always good to wish someone a good day and a good year and a good chedesh. In the context of after, in the beginning of Cheshvan, we're trying to draw and unpack, Fernanda Pak and the Peklach, the packages that we gathered, the great packages we gathered in Tishrei. So say a good Giben Shtiar is a very fitting thing. Till what point? I mean, Zion Cheshvan, the Rebbe made it very clear, it says clearly in Shulchan Aruch, that they still felt the energy of the Chag, of the holiday, until Zayin Cheshvan. Again, we're going to talk about that in a moment. And because that was the day when the last Jews who made El Laregel, the pilgrimage they made for Sukkot to Yerushalayim, they arrived back into, when the, they arrived back to, to Bovel, to Nahar Pros, the Euphrates River, which was essentially a border where many Jews lived at the time after Baish Rishon, after the first temple during the time of the second temple. So 
So that's why we don't pray for rain until they return back, because we don't want to in any way create discomfort that the rain may cause them in their travels. So the Shulchan Aruch Pefeder states that they're still under the impression of the aura, of the energy of the Chag. So Zion Cheshvan is definitely a date where you can still say a good Geben Shdyar. How long to say it? I don't never heard this certain particular day, but I would think in the beginning of Cheshvan, the first week or two. The Rebbe Nesichus often talks about Vayakov Halachadake, which was the customary statement made in Blabavich, but Tzoyisim stated that it really begins and then the different levels. And the ultimate level, Pasha Bereshit, and Noyach, even Lech Lecha, that we're going into, is also a form of Lech Lecha, Marzchem, Melatchem, Besavicha, which is also a form of travel. So we're in the period, basically in the beginning, the middle of Cheshvan is still under the impression of the Yom Tevim. So that's how I would answer that question, but I appreciate your writing to me about this. And um, it's always good to have a little humor in the whole picture, and I wish this person is listening, and uh, there's ways to, to respond. You don't have to close your ears when someone gives you a blessing, even if the blessing is not exactly the right date. Okay. So what is now the significance and lesson of Zayin Cheshvan? So let's go to Zayin Cheshvan, since it's this week, on Tuesday. Oh, today is Dalit. So Wednesday, actually. Um, so Zayin Cheshvan, as I just stated, is a day that was when they begin asking for Kshomim for rain in Eretz Yisrael. So even though we pray for it in Shemini Atzeres, Geshem, but the actual prayer, the daily prayer, we start in Eretz Yisrael on Zion Cheshvan. In Chutzlaretz, we actually begin later in December time. That's not for now. So Zion Cheshvan, the Rebbe, as in his inimitable way, brought alive things that would become, became forgotten or more obscure or not so much appreciated, that Zion Cheshvan is a significant day because it's a day when the Chag is still radiating, the holiday is still radiating, and the lesson of Avis Yisrael is tremendous. The entire Jewish people, even though rain is a source of sustenance, especially in agricultural culture, you know, later in Cheshvan, the rain didn't go for a few weeks, it was considered a bad omen that perhaps we have to pray and fast, Rain was their sustenance. Without rain, they didn't have crops. And yet, because there's still one Jew that may still be traveling and has not reached the Euphrates River to get back home after the holiday, we don't ask for rain not to cause an individual discomfort. You could say one individual or even a few. There are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people who need the rain for their, for their sustenance. And that's the power of Avesis Yisrael. So lesson, the most important lesson is, yes, for the, to avoid discomfort to even one Jew, we can sometimes refrain from our own benefit. This doesn't mean forever. After Zayin Cheshwin, they began asking for rain. But the importance of one person's discomfort. Imagine if we were able to apply that to ourselves. Most people have, all of us have, natural ava, natural love, natural ava sisrol. In Tanya chapter 32, the Alter Rebbe, explains how we're really all one, one family, and we have, uh, we're all part of one organism. So the natural connection is that your one hand, God forbid, would not hurt another hand. But sometimes we forget, and sometimes we're distracted. So Zayin Cheshvan reminds us and wakes us up, discomfort of one person. So the entire day is marked as a day that we don't, we don't begin praying for rain till that day. I think the lesson is very clear, doesn't need to be elaborated upon. 
On a deeper level, it's as I was saying, till Zion Cheshvan, the power of the holidays is still with us. Because it can't just be, it's just, it just can't just be, it's just on, only on a negative, not to cause discomfort, it's because you still have, you still have the power of the Yom Tevim that's saturating and sustaining us. And after Zion Cheshvan begins the work, the harder work of sowing, the, of, uh, of, of watering the fields, the rain and so on, to be able to sustain ourselves. Okay. Another thing that happened in Cheshvan is the conclusion of the first Beis Amigdash, the, stru- the building of the first Beis Amigdash by Shleim HaMelech. So it's interesting, in that very month that we call bitter, that we call void, a void where you don't have the holidays, the Beis Amigdash is concluded. Just again to emphasize how even in this vacuum, the greatest things can, are born. So someone writes, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you as always for your kindness and wisdom. My email here, I hope, isn't disrespectful. It's not meant to be. Today, as writing this, is commemorating the completion by Solomon, by King Solomon of the first temple. And something surfaces. The thing is, deep down, I love the fact that the deepest worship has shifted from temple to home. Which means after the destruction of the Bishamikdash, our home has become our temple. The truth is, it's our Besakneshes, Besamedesh, but as the Rebbe emphasized, Veshachanti Besechom from the Shaloh, Besech Kolechod Veechod. The Rebbe brings a Maimer from Tov Shindalad, from the Friedrich Rebbe, that in a way that's the real essence of the Besamedesh, even when it stood, that it should be Besech Kolechod Veechod. But then there was a physical building, and now it's very clear that it's within each one of us, which includes each, in each our home. Just embellishing a bit upon what this person is writing. As a woman and also an introvert, and also someone who has been homebound over 10 years now with medical conditions, etc., temple life wouldn't be fully accessible to me anyway. But home is. And more than that, even before I was homebound, back when I did attend in person services, honestly, my deepest prayer still ended up being at home. It's not that there isn't a draw to the temple, to the Beis Amigdash. And something stirs for sure when reading of the details of how the temple was composed. But something stirs too knowing that home has become temple, my temple, our temple. And how precious that has become. So the question, the importance of home in our present day-to-day lives. That's spoken to quite a bit. But at end times, does the rebuilt temple diminish the importance that has come to home as temple? Or maybe even, does it amplify it? And in either case, might you speak in whatever way moved to, to the subject of home as temple? Thank you for reading this, and may God bless and keep you. So we all pray for Shalayim Ircha, that the Shalayim should be rebuilt and the Beis Amidah should be rebuilt. But obviously, it's not just not compromising the idea of a temple within our hearts and within our homes. On the contrary, as you write, it amplifies it. When we learn about the Beis Amidah, starting with Osir Limidah V'Shachanti B'Seicham, that's what it says. That's the first verse, the first time, the mitzvah, build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. So it's very clear it's all about among you. It's not about bricks and mortar or materials as it was in the portable Mishkan. It's about you and I. However, we live in a physical world, so what God wanted to create a microcosm, so-called a landing place, a landing 
space where the divine presence would be there in the Beis Amigdash, in the Mishkan. And later in the other different versions of the Mishkan till finally the Beis Bayis Rishin, Bayis Sheni, which were both destroyed. But then ultimately in the Bayis Nitzchi, the third Beis Amigdash, Migdash Adnai, Kainu Yodecho, which will be forever. But that was not meant to deflect the idea of divine presence within us. On the contrary, it was meant to have before us a living example, a place we go to, pilgrimage, three times a year, aliyah l'regel. But no one lived in the Beis Amidosh. And the Kehanim and Levim who served there, they were the only ones that served there. There wasn't Ezra Sisrael, a section for the Jews, but that was not the place where they lived. The point was that Beis Amidosh should give them the energy that when they go back home, they should make their homes into a Beis Amidosh, to make their hearts and souls into a Beis Amidosh. Now, unfortunately, the physical Beis Amidosh was destroyed due to the different sins and transgressions that God's presence could not rest among a divisive people and all the other faults that did not allow the divine presence to be there. But God forbid to say that we can't have the divine presence in our own personal lives. On the contrary, this created the opportunity, first build a temple within you, have love for each other, no divisiveness. Then we can rebuild the third temple. But first you need to make the keli, you need to be you as a person. So to, to uh, somewhat comfort you, and don't worry that the Beis Amidus is not going to replace our homes. On the contrary, they work together. The Beis Amidus is a full-blown version. It's just like saying Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot have powerful, powerful resources they give us. But it doesn't end there. The rest of the year, now we have to unpack them in our own homes, in our own lives. So there's a time when we gather. It's like a time when you sit before your teacher and you learn and you absorb. And then there's a time when you unpack and integrate and internalize it into your life. And then there's the interfaces, Shmini Yatzera, Simchas Teira, Shabbos Bereshis, Noyach, Lech Lecha. These are all ways, bridges that help us bridge and connect the two realities. So it's fusing the spiritual and the material and bringing the Beis Amigdash home. That's the goal. And when the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi will be rebuilt, the Karev, very soon, the coming of Mashiach, it will only enhance it'll be both an expression of the Mishkan that we built internally and within ourselves. And on the the other hand, it will also feed and give us energy to continue to go from strength to strength without any resting, constant growth in 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 this manner of fusing the divine and existence, marrying heaven and earth. Okay. So now that we covered some of that, that, let's move. Even though yesterday was Parshaneach, I want to do a little follow-up, because it's also in the same spirit. And that's why the theme of the Parshas that we read. So Bereshis we spoke about two weeks ago. Bereshis is, be, is Reishis, which is like Tishrei, Reishis, Reish. But at the same time, it's also Bereshis, Bara Lekim, Zashamayim, Vesar, is the interface between the head of the year, the central nervous system, and the existence heaven and earth, and everything that was created. Noyach continues the theme. We then see that human beings have their faults. And there was the, the fall of the eating from the tree of knowledge, and then the later problems that occurred until the point that the world was filled with pollution and toxins and destruction and crime. And therefore God said, we now have to renew our contract. And the mobble came to cleanse to create a better world that after the Mabel, Noyach would leave the Teva, the Ark, to rebuild life. 
So let's talk about that because it's the same spirit of the idea that we're discussing, going from a state of revelation and transcendence and now trying to bring that transcendence into our daily lives. So there are the, all the challenges that come with that. Maintaining inspiration as we discussed last week. Internalizing it. So Noyach carries that message, as does Lech Lecha, which will follow Noyach. That this is this week that we're going into the Parsha Lech Lecha. So dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was reading Parsha's Noyach and noticed something strange. When the flood ended, God commanded Noyach to leave the ark. I would think that during the year in the ark, Noyach was so overworked, so overworked and stressed out from feeding and cleaning the animals, that the moment the flood was over, he would immediately run out of the ark like a prisoner being paroled from jail. So why did God have to command him to leave the ark? Okay, very good question. But that question itself tells you the answer. Noyach being in the ark, yes, on one hand was a certain confinement as, a, as the raging floodwaters were surrounding them and essentially cleansing the entire earth. Or we'll talk about the entire earth shortly. But at the same time, the Teva was also a protection. A protection that was, Chassidus explains, was Bina, the level of Bina, a taste of the world to come. That's why the animals were like the lion, Gar Zevim Keves, a Zeev, a wolf and a Keves lived side by side, and a lion with a child. In other words, the, ver- the verses that we talk about in the future where animals will be at peace with each other and pray and predator will live side by side in peace and harmony, and it was a taste of it in the ark. And from a point of view of a chsizh we have the taich of the balshemta of teva sneyach, teva, as we discussed last week, from the word word, it means a word, the words, the holy words of teir and tefillah that surround and insulate and protect us from the raging floodwaters of the worries and concerns of life, of parnosa, income and health and other issues that concern us. So when Noyach was in that world, he didn't want to leave. This is a beautiful sikha from the Rebbe. Remember when the Rebbe delivered, I think it was in Tov Shalamid uh, Vov, or Tov Shemem, a few times. And the Rebbe said, that's why it's same in Teva. Just as he needed first a command, he didn't want to go on the Teva, he wanted to stay. He needed a command to go. Now as a command, he wouldn't want to go. Just like you say, al First you have to compel the soul to come into this world because it doesn't want to come into such a world. And then the soul doesn't want to leave because this is the place where it does mitzvahs. So once Meyach was in the Teva and he experienced that, he didn't want to leave so easily. Hashem said, no, you have to go out into the world. Meyach was also concerned, hey, we're going to rebuild life and it'll be again corrupted and again destruction. No, nope. go build a new world. That's why he was giving again the mitzvah pruravu. A mitzvah approved of a second time because Noyach could have thought to himself that he's going to refrain. He's going to avoid having children and creating a potential corruption, as many people sometimes think, who grew up in abu- and people have grown up in an abusive home. I don't want to bring children into an abusive world. I don't want to end up perhaps abusing them myself. And the answer is no, make a better world. The solution is not avoiding, the solution is improving. So this had to be commanded say minat teva, go out of the teva. We leave when we're in the month of Tishrei, surrounded by the holy words of prayer and davening and, and learning and the holy environment of the holidays. We have to be told, say minateva, leave this holy teva and now go into the world and bring that holiness into the world. 
Is that a challenge? Yes, it is. But you have the power to do so. You have the resources. So that's the answer to that question. Okay. Since we're talking about Noyach, I just want to quickly follow up. Last week, the question was asked about kangaroos that are exclusively an, a creature, an animal in the Australia. Were they on the Teva? And I spoke about whether how kangaroos, different answers, possible answers. But one thing I wanted to point out, which I did not mention, which leads to another question, was, was the entire earth flooded? So there's a question. The Gemara, there's a machlekes, whether the, the flood, the mabul, affected Eretz Yisrael, two different opinions. But the question about the entire earth. So there are quite a few opinions and commentaries say no. Because the point of the mabul was not just to flood the entire earth, it was to flood the place where people lived who were corrupt and the criminal. And they didn't live everywhere on earth. Because according to the Teda, when did the, when did the transmigration happen? After Dera Floga, which happens at the end of Pasha Neach, building of the Tower of Babel. Even, there are opinions that talk about life in other, like in America and other places in the world. But the question is, number one, were they also corrupted? But let's say yes. So according to those opinions, maybe the Mabel was also there. But especially if there were no people there, then not necessarily the flood affected the entire world. And this is discussed by commentaries. So you can argue that kangaroos were in Australia, but there were no people there. And therefore the flood did not affect a part of the world. There was no reason for it. To create, bring a flood for no reason has no, would not make sense. So the flood was only where there were the populations on earth, which were primarily in the Middle East. And that the entire area which basically covers the areas of uh, the, what today are modern-day uh, Iraq and modern-day Iran, as well as the other countries in that whole area, maybe northern Africa, depending how far people had reached to that point. So there are definitely opinions like that. So based on that, there wouldn't be no question about kangaroos or other creatures exclusive to different parts of the world that were not where the, mo- the mobile affected. But obviously, when you read the Chumash itself, it sounds like, and, and some do interpret, that it was everywhere. And that still does not mean people lived everywhere. That's another discussion for another time. Okay. Now we'll move from Noyach to Lech Lecha. Chassidus applied and lessons from Lech Lecha. So, many questions have come in. I will try to cover some of them, but above all, everything is focused on Chassidus applied. How to apply Chassidus to our personal lives. And obviously, Chassidus explains the Pashis and the Teda. So it's really Torah applied. It's applying Torah, Melosh and Hera, from the word directive and guidance, and um, uh, from the Hera, from the word um, uh, directive and guidance, giving us guidance in life. So that is essentially applying Torah to our personal, emotional, psychological lives that make it relevant. Karve Lecha, Dover Me'ed, in every aspect that we do. Like Torah being the life's operator's manual. So, first question. Was Avram truly a great man by historical standards? Absolutely and unequivocally, yes. You don't need to go to Jewish books or Torah books even. And you see Abraham, considered the first prophet by the major religions. Considered the father of monotheism. In many ways, the father of modern civilization. Because he was the first documented person to publicly preach the idea of one God, an idea of living a life, a moral life. 
Charity, virtue, kindness, justice. Entire books have been written demonstrating and celebrating Abraham's life and how he actually really pioneered and trailblazed what we call today civilization, ethics, morality, living up to a higher calling. Some even describe the founding of the United States very much built on Abrahamic principles. They called it the Abrahamic Accords, the peace in the Middle East between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and other countries, because it was Abraham that gave birth to Yishmael, the father and progenitor, ancestor of the Arab Muslim world, and Yitzchak, the father and progenitor and ancestor of the Jewish world. His son Yitzchak would give birth to Esav and Yaakov, Yaakov respectively, father of the Jewish people, Esav, the father of the Roman, Western, and Christian world. So Abraham was the first to establish these principles, and we have slowly caught up his children, his grandchildren. So yes, there's no question that on all standards, Abraham is perhaps the greatest pioneer of them all, being the first, Echad Haya Avram. And of course, the lesson to us is uh, very relevant because everything we learn now in Parsha Lech Lecha about Avram Avinu, his kindness, his generosity, him and Sarah are lessons to us today that are really the basis of every healthy life, healthy community and healthy nations and healthy civilization. So that's the story with Abraham. We'll, soon talk, we'll talk about this shortly. Abraham also, when he was, received the extra letter, hey, from Avram to Avraham, Av Hamoin Goyim, God says, you will be a father of many nations, which essentially describes exactly what I was talking about, how he's the father of many nations, but he's also the father in the sense of establishing the standards for his children and grandchildren, for people till this very day. And that those that bless you will be blessed, as God says to him in the beginning of this chapter. And many other such references that are today universal and global. Some say even in the East, the word Brahmin in Buddhism and other such terms are related to Brahmin to Abraham, which is consistent to what the Torah says later in Parsha Chayasara, that um, Abraham sent his children, later children, Bnei Keturah, to the East, laden with mystical names and powers. Some say these are the, 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 the roots of Eastern philosophies that we have today. Okay. How is Abraham considered to be the first Jew if Abraham's mother was not Jewish? A very good question. So let's define what the word Jew means. To add a question to a question. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were the first Jews, so why did the Jewish people have to go through a conversion when they came to Sinai? And we know they went through a conversion. All the laws of conversion come from Sinai. They accepted the mitzvahs, they circumcised themselves, and they immersed themselves in a mikveh. And the answer is because technically, halachically, the concept of a Jew didn't exist before Mount Sinai. Before Sinai, all nations were called the nations of the world. But there were people who chose God. 
Abraham grew up in a home that was a pagan home. So technically, halachically, based on the standards of Jewish law after Mount Torah, the Ovis were not considered Jewish. They were not considered not Jewish either because there wasn't a concept of a non-Jew either in the, in the, in the context of Jew and non-Jew. So there's an entire Sfarim on this. There's a sefer called Prashas Drachim that collects all the different opinions. What would be the categorization of Jewish, halachically speaking? But as far as hashkafa-wise, meaning philosophically, yes, Abraham chose a path. So in some ways, he was not Mitzvah Vaisa, the Gemara says. He wasn't commanded. He was in a Mitzvah Vaisa, but that has a quality because it was his own initiative. He rejected the paganism of his parents, of his community, of his entire nation, which is, of course, incurred the wrath of Nimrod and all those around him. That's why he was called Avram Ha'ivri, Ivri. He stood on one side and the whole population of the world on the other. But this was his initiative. And he went to search for God through his own initiative. And because of that, God met him halfway and said, you searched for me, here I am. And that is when God chooses him because he demonstrated that search. He didn't just choose him out of nowhere. As we read later in the chapter, once Abraham demonstrated his commitment to a higher good, to a higher reality. And it's a long discussion how Abraham came to that. That's not the discussion right now. Then, essentially, God embraced him and said to him, you and your children will be my people, and I will give you the promised land. This is the Brisbane Absarim stated later in this week's chapter in Lech Lecha. So that's the answer to that question. And as a matter of fact, it's when it says um, that it comes, Tomei Yotza there's an expression, the pure come out from the impure. The Medr says this refers to Avram, who came from Terach, who was an a idol worshiper. So this also teaches us, no matter where we are, we can always, no matter what our parents were like. And in this context, we have Jewish parents, even if it's non-Jewish parents, doesn't mean they're bad people. But everybody, no matter what the background is, you can learn from Avram that you can choose a better path. We're not talking about Jewishness per se, we're talking about how to live your life. So even if it was a dysfunctional home, you can create a functional one. That's one of the lessons we can derive from this. What is the significance of Hashem telling Abraham, in order to be successful and become a great nation, you first have to leave your father's house and your place of birth? And it says, That will make your name great. So the significance is, first of all, psychologically, very basically this. As long as the umbilical cord still ties you to your mother and your father, and I don't just mean physically, I mean psychologically and emotionally, you really can never be yourself. Greatness comes when you separate yourself, not in a negative way, where you're not just living under the protection and extension of your parents, moving to a, becoming your own man, so to speak. That's when you become great. Till then, you're still under that influence, and therefore it's just an extension of what came, even if it's a good influence. On a deeper level, as I've discussed many times, refers to three levels of subjectivity that each of us has. Self-love, subjectivity of our own, uh, our own biases, and second, the influence of our parents and attitudes, and third, social impact, social peer pressure. To really be yourself, to go to the land that I will show you who you really are, 
meaning showing you, not the land, but you, who you really are, is only possible when, you're, when you get out of the shadow of those three influences. So yes, the secret to greatness is to do exactly that. And the person continues and writes, is that one of the reasons 4,500 people moved out of Crown Heights and went on shlichus? I don't know the exact number, but it's definitely the reason the Rebbe essential, because he said, to grow is when you become a mashpia, not just a makabal, a recipient. But you become an influencer when you go away from your homeland. Yes, so there's lech lecha leaving a negative place, there's lech lecha also leaving a positive place, but now you can become truly blossom, as the Rebbe made very clear, that when you go out, like Avram Avinu, you will blossom and become great. But it's not about arrogant greatness, it's about really achieving your potential and living up to the purpose of your existence. Well, let's just use the main, most best example of all. Not even an example. God takes a neshama, a divine soul, neshama shenasatabi taheri, pure divine soul, and what does he do? He t- rips it out of its homeland, which is in heaven, in Gan Eden, Be'er Sheva, later Vayetze Yaakov Be'er Sheva is a similar idea. And where does he put it? In a hostile, dark place, Harona, a place where the divine is concealed. Literally, the ultimate Lech Lecha. But the purpose is, because then the Neshama can really blossom and reveal what it's capable of. As long as it's in its own palace, basking in the light and the aura of the divine, it will not really be challenged and therefore will not express its fullest strength. Where do you see its strength when it's sent to a place that's antithetical to the divine and the neshama shows what it's capable of by transforming this world into a divine home, a divine garden? So continuing that theme, dear Rabbi Jacobson, was Avram doing Lech Lecha, moving from his father's house and city to a new place, a similar concept to Mishana Mok and Mishana Mazel. Changing your place changes your luck. Your destiny. If we ever find ourselves in a rut and feeling uninspired, should we quit our jobs and move to a new city and our luck will change for the better? Thank you and may God Almighty bless you to have a sweet and successful new year of 5782 filled with good luck and mazel. Okay, thank you. And the answer is generally yes. One of the ways to, to grow, one of the ways to find inspiration when you don't have it on your own is to do exactly that, change something. Now, it could be a physical change, it could be an emotional, spiritual change, but a physical change, it says clearly, Mishana Malkin, Mishana Mazel. The Rebbe writes, every time people wrote to the Rebbe that they moved somewhere, the Rebbe would always use this Maimar Chazal. Why, what does it mean changing your place? Because your place means your comfort zone. It means where you were. As we say in any type of growth, if nothing changes, nothing changes. If you think what you thought, and you say what you said, and you do what you did, you know what you'll have? What you had. If you stay in the same place, you stay in the same place. What do they say? Insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So Lech L'chamartzecha is the first example of that. So in addition to all the other benefits we spoke about, the mere fact that you shake things up. Now, whether a person should actually quit their job or move, that should be discussed case by case with your mentor, with your mashpia, Aseh Because that's not always the solution. You know, do you have another job, a better job? So moving requires review. It's not just since things are not working, let's just run for our lives. We're not talking about running from a fire. We're talking about a deliberate strategy that will help you grow. So in addition to just getting out of the rut, it's also maybe you'll go to a place where you really can blossom far more than where you are. But that requires getting out of our comfort zones, and we all know how difficult that can be. 
So lech lecha ma'atzacha, if you can put it in one word, is get out of your comfort, one statement, get out of your comfort zone. And that's when you grow and you blossom. Yeah. And that's why the emphasis in the verse is not even where you're going to. The focus is on where you're leaving from because where you are right now is what keeps you trapped. So the Torah says in three different ways, Hashem says to Avram, which is really a statement to every Jew, to every human being in history. You want to really become yourself, find yourself and find your calling? Leave the forces that keep you trapped in your past. Even if they're positive forces, but they're still exerting themselves, imposing themselves on you. And you want to unleash yourself what you're capable of, not just as an extension of what came before you, in addition to an extension, addition that we, in addition to standing on the shoulders of giants, but to sing your unique song and deliver your unique message and contribution and light and warmth to this world. Next question. Shouldn't we discover Hashem on our own as Abraham did instead of learning it from our educators? Avram is great because he discovers Hashem on his own. Shouldn't we all do the same? Meaning, why aren't, we, why aren't we required to study all the religions and decide what is the truth on our own? Isn't living the way our parents li- lived inauthentic? Now, that would be like saying that since you got some things from your parents that are great treasures, you say, I'm going to ignore that and just find my own treasures. You can do both. The beautiful thing on a very basic level is you take what you got from your parents and then you build on it. As children, young children, it's healthy not to be on our own. We need the protection. Everything we're speaking about is as we grow into adults. But initially, we need to be protected. First of all, nine months in our mother's womb. Then the early stages of development in our formative years in a healthy environment. Whether it's healthy or not is another discussion, but that's what we need. Then a healthy education is that when you become an adult, you begin to mature. You can, that you're also taught and given the right and the ability and the empowerment to spread your wings and now let us hear your voice. So the voice that came before us can be a trap if you don't spread those wings. But, if you, but, but, to, but to say that that is an impediment on its own, no. You stand on the shoulders of giants and then you see further through your own strength. So it's really a combination of all. Avram Avinu had no choice. He had to pioneer a complete new path. We ride on that. That's why we say, It's an inheritance from our parents. That's a great thing, the inheritance. Not just the physical inheritance, but spiritual, psychological, emotional, our very genetic DNA. Our genetic code and our DNA comes from our parents. To say, let's reject all that and start from scratch. No, no need to. Ride on that and then take it to a completely another dimension, quantitatively and qualitatively, that only you and you, you only can, you and only you can contribute. So that's the answer to that. That would be like saying, I'm not like in knowledge. You learned something yesterday. Yes, today you want to learn something new, but you don't ignore what you learned yesterday. It's accumulative and you build upon it. To reach the highest, to reach new horizons, you have to climb a mountain. You're going to keep on going back to square one. You're not going to climb. You climbed yesterday, two days ago, three days ago. Now you've reached higher. Now build upon that. That's called running a marathon and carrying the baton from those before us, but to new places, to new unprecedented places, to the road less traveled. That's the key to what Judaism teaches us.
you have children of your own, you're not going to say, listen, I'm not going to tell them anything I know. That you've made mistakes through trial and error. You can teach them things. They shouldn't make their mistakes. You look at every business, at any entity, any organization. They have documents that say, here's what we tried, here's what worked, what didn't work. Someone's going to say, I want to be my own man. Being your own man means learning from the past, learning from those mistakes so you don't waste time. You can waste so much time. And then take it to the next level. Now, there are times we have to make our own mistakes correct, but as much as possible, we can avoid it by riding on that which came before and then taking it to another level. Which is often the problem that people go the other extreme. Since their parents and that came before, what came before them was toxic, let me just drop it all. Yeah, drop the toxins, but if there's anything good, why would you want to deprive yourself of something that you can benefit from? But this again has to be addressed in any different ways because some people do have past that they really cannot, has completely polluted them. And at times you have to avoid that. But that again is case by case beyond the scope of what we're talking about right now. Okay. I see there's so many questions about Lech Lecha, I really, I don't think I can go through all of them to be honest. Um, so I'll just do a few more. Then I want to talk about some other things. Just looking at the list here. Yeah. Okay. And then maybe I'll do follow-up next week. Maybe I'll just go through them as we go. But a lot of questions come in. And um, for all I know, it's coming from one person who is using this opportunity, which doesn't bother me. You know, I see from the language sometimes it's more than one person, but who knows? It doesn't really make a difference because it's all anonymous, which is a good opportunity to now announce as well that if anybody wants to send a question or submit a question, we have a completely anonymous forum at chassidahsupply.com. Please take advantage of it. There you also have resources, all previous programs, the contests that we did about applying uh, a chassidah to a, to a challenge, an issue in life, an essay form, a creative form, as well as other chassidic resources. So please take advantage of chassidahsupply.com. Okay. Why was Sarah so special? Didn't she behave cruelly by sending away Hagar and Yishmael? Avram is great because... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't read the right one. In the Pasha, this Pasha, we learn about... We learn some bits and pieces about Avram. At three years old, he discovered there was only one Hashem. He fought against idolatry. He was very big into hospitality and his tent had doors on all four sides, of all four sides to greet guests, could enter, so guests could enter from any direction. We can see why Hashem chose him to be the prototype for the first Jew. But what do we know about Sarah? Where was her family from? Did she have siblings? What were some of her hobbies as a teenager? What qualities did she have that made God choose her to be the first Jewess? Did Sarah ever write down any good challah recipes? I hope so. Another question which relates to this. Hello, Rabbi. Why is Sarah looked upon fondly in history when she was the one who kicked her husband's wife and young child out of the house, Hagar and Yishmael, and into the desert with no supplies to survive? When we see Jewish women mistreat their workers and cleaning ladies and act abusive to them, is this a trait inherited from Sarah? God forbid. So first of all, the mere fact that Avram chose Sarah and Sarah chose Avram, you can write me from that alone know what type of person Sarah was. She was his partner. It was she that said, take Hagar and have a child. It was she that was a total partner with Avram in everything they did. 
Avram Megayer Anoshim, Sar Megayeres Anoshim. Avram converted, which means he brought closer to God the men. Sarah did the same with the women. Later, we learn in Chaya Sarah, Parsha Chaya Sarah, the virtues of Sarah, that when Yitzchak was looking for a wife, Avram was looking for a wife for Yitzchak, how did Yitzchak recognize Rivka? He brought her into Sarah's tent and saw she had the same qualities as Sarah. And what are those qualities? Three things. The cloud over the tent, which represented Taras HaMishpacha, healthy intimacy in a married life, married life, a flame that burned from morning to night, from Friday to Friday, which represents Shalom Bay as the peace and harmony at home, from lighting candles, Shabbos candles. And the third thing, Bracha Isa, yeah, a blessing in her dough. Not just she made good challah, but he saw a blessing, it had a grace, it had a charm to it, a spirituality to it. So that tells you who Sarah was, just from that alone. And in general, when we read in the Torah, Avram, you can rest assured it means Avram and Sarah. Why the focus is more on Avram? That's a good question, which is also a question that has to be addressed. I'll talk about that later, today, or another, or another program. But the very concept of a Sarah being one partner, partner, as, Sarah, as Avram's name was changed, Sarah's name was changed. And you see also how Hashem tells Avram, listen to your wife Sarah. So even her act of sending away Hagar and Yishmael sounds cruel, but it was really, if you think long-term, the best possible thing. Having discipline at the right time is necessary. Yishmael was corrupting Yitzchak, and Yitzchak was, was a critical component in the link that would later build the Jewish people. Of course Yishmael was the son of Avram, and of course there was compassion. And you see what happens. The Malach comes and protects them. Sarah had complete faith they would be fine. But in this home right now, she understood the sensitivities of the education needed for Yitzchok. So sometimes things appear cruel. The Torah is very blunt. But you have to look at the final results. And the final results, it created a people. It created a son and then later a, a nation that would be necessary to transform this world and not be corrupted. Now who Yishmol was and what he did, being that Lu Yichvi Yishmol Lefonov, Avram says, may he live before you, God. So you see that Avram prayed for him. And there are many things that Yishmael would accomplish and later do tshuva and so on. But at that time, Sarah was more sensitive to the education of her son Yitzchak. And this was not a cruel act per se. It was actually ultimately compassionate. Later in the Pasha, we hear the story about how Avram and Sarah go down to Mitzrayim because of the famine. Why did Avram hide Sarah in a box? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I have a question about Sarah's box. Why did Avram have to hide her in a box and lie that she was his wife? Can we hide our wives in a box if they talk too much and interrupt our football games that we're watching? God forbid. That was not what was going on. This was the first time that after Avram and Sarah had chosen a life of God, they were going into a place that was the most corrupt place on earth, Ervas Ha'aretz. And as we see, as soon as Sarah arrives, even there was in a box and all that, Ultimately, when Pharaoh sees her beauty, he wants her, which is why Avram lied, because he knew they would kill him. Now, in other words, they had no sexual boundaries. And Avram was entering there. He was aware of it, but he didn't aware, like when he says, now I know how beautiful you are. So people ask, till now he didn't know how beautiful she was. But now he saw her beauty from the eyes of corrupt people, meaning what they, how they see it in a very grub, in a very inappropriate way. So the hiding in a box is symbolic 
of protecting our purity. He himself could not hide himself, so he would protect her. It wasn't about locking her away, God forbid. It was, we're going to a very, it's a going into a very dangerous area. What do you do? You surround yourself as much as possible with protection. That was the goal. And to the point that he even lied, because not to save his own skin, because if they did kill him, Sarah would have no one to protect her. So that's why he said, this is my sister. There are deeper reasons why you use the word sister. Sometimes a wife is called a sister. You have different expressions in the, in the love and the connection. But the technical thing was simply to protect from a very corrupt Egypt, which is why it went down. And the lesson to us is very clear, the same thing. What are the lessons we can learn from this? Yeah, like someone writes that question. Um, can you share a practical example of what we learned from the story of Avram and Sarah and Mitzrayim and their famine? And the famine? It seems like a bizarre story with little lessons for us today. There's your lesson. That sometimes in life we're going to have to go to places that are challenging. Always protect the purest within you and within your family. Because you don't want that to ever be contaminated or polluted. And then you have to fight the battles that you have to fight. There was a reason to go. The famine represents when there's no choice, but you have to go to a place that you don't want to go to. Later would happen, later this would happen with Yaakov and the tribes. They had no choice because of the famine to go to Mitzrayim. And they too went in a way to protect themselves. So there there was another reason because ultimately Yaakov had to come down to Mitzrayim and the Golas Mitzrayim would begin. But some do compare this mini story to like the mini descent. That later Hashem would refer to Avram by the that your children will be in a land that's not their own. And we need to know that we were, when we're in exile, whenever it may be, then or now, physically or spiritually, not all is lost. Always protect the pure within your neshama. Your neshama never goes to Golas. And at the same time, deal with things on a practical level to be able to maintain your integrity. You have to negotiate, negotiate. But never ever compromise your connection to God. We have to work with the world. Dina machusa dina means we follow the laws of the land, but only when it doesn't compromise Torah and halacha. So there is a need to sometimes negotiate and work with the laws of the land. When you come to a city, you have to follow its ways. But as long as it doesn't affect the purity of your own soul and Torah law and what God wants of us. So the lesson is very, very clear. Okay. I'll do one more question. If Avram Avinu kept the entire Torah before it was given, Let's begin this again. If Avram Avinu kept the entire Torah before it was given, as we are taught that all the others kept the entire Torah, even though it wasn't officially given until a few hundred years later by Matan Torah, in that case, why did Avram wait until he was 99 years old to have a bris, circumcision? And if he waited because he wanted to wait until God actually requested him to do it, then why keep the rest of the Torah without God specifically asking him to do so? And the answer is very, very clear. 
First of all, the way he kept the Torah was mostly spiritually. You couldn't do things like tefillin or matzah because the Jews had not been in Mitzrayim yet, so it was spiritual. The bris is a physical mitzvah, and that could only be done by God saying him to do so. That's why it says that before Matan Torah, the mitzvahs that the others did only affected the spirituality, not the physical matter of the world. It didn't change the physical universe because there was the gzeda that that which was above does not come below, and that which is below does not go above. So it only affected the spiritual. Bris mil is an exception. That has to come from God. So the mitzvahs he did were all able to be initiated by him, except the one that he couldn't initiate, which is a physical mitzvah of actually circumcising his flesh. That only can come as a mitzvah from God to be able to have the power to transform the physical. Avram could not do that on his own. So even his kindness and other things, those are all spiritual things. And he understood this is the right path. God then responded that I choose you, and that's the significance of the Brisbane Absarim, and that you will now be my nation, and your children will inherit this land, and the rest is history. Okay. As I said, there's more, but I want to cover a few other things. This year is a Shnasa Shmita, a sabbatical year. So one person asked the question, why do, why do sabbatical years cancel debts? Debt, in other words, if you have a debt, it cancels it. Like, is it like a statute of limitations for loans? Can someone who owes money purposely travel far away and not come back to town until after the sabbatical year so he can avoid paying back a loan? Sorry, buddy, I'd love to pay you back, but I'm not allowed because, you know, it's Shemitah time. Woohoo. Okay. Well, obviously, because Chazal in their infinite wisdom understood this, that's why they made the prusbal. Because people would start avoiding giving loans for all these different reasons that are possible that people would avoid paying, repaying. And a prusbal is a whole process. And the Rebbe was very strong that before Shemitah begins, we should do, make a prusbal. A prusbal is essentially that you're giving or you're apportioning your loans to a public domain like a holy place. So they are allowed to maintain the debt. So personally, all debts are freed because Shabbos, that's what Shabbos is about. Just like the land, you don't work the land because you trust in God. The loans we've given are also all canceled. However, through a prusbal, you can maintain that because you're actually giving over the loan to another entity that is allowed to collect and, and then and basically return it to you. So there's a bigger discussion on that. So is that like avoiding the mitzvah? No, it's allowing that this mitzvah of, of Shemitah should not cause people not to be able to get loans throughout the six years. So it ultimately is actually helping people get loans, not the other way around. So why does the Torah say it? So there are different explanations given why the Torah, because first of all, the Torah is assuming that in the healthiest situation where people will repay loans and will not try to use it as an excuse. And secondly, you need to know both situations. That yes, Shabbos Shabbosin, which is Shemitah, does free loans in the way we are trusting God to take care of us and not the loan that we gave. And we allow people, just like the field that you have becomes free. So to the loans... And at the same time, at the same time, you don't want that to be abused. You want it to be protected in a way that works. So it's not like anybody can just come and take advantage of Shemitah. Okay. I wanted to address more things, but let me conclude with the Chassidus question. And that is, what is the divine chariot and what is its significance in our daily lives? The divine chariot is called the Markova. 
You have a Merkava, especially in the book of Yecheskel, a vision that he saw a chariot. Obviously, it's a physical, it's a spiritual vision, not a physical chariot, but it still uses the metaphor of a chariot, and that's the vision. A chariot is symbolic, and Chassidus explains, of Bittel. A chariot is completely has no ego or will of its own. It's only there to carry the one that's riding on it. That's why we say Ha'ovis Hein Hein Amarkova. The Ovis, they are called the Merkova, a Merkova to God, because their entire lives, 24-7, as he explains in chapter 18 in Tanya, and then later again in chapter 23 in different places, that they're completely consumed with doing what God wants. Avram was completely the personified chesed, with no other agenda, 24-7. And that they, they it gave to us as an as a inheritance. Yerushalayim Avisenu, due to the fact that they did that work, that they pass on to us the Ava Musuteris, as he explains in chapter 18 and 19. The love, that essential and quintessential and core love that every Jew has, every neshama has to God. So its significance is critical. Their bittel gave us the power to fundamentally always be connected even when we don't feel it. As he explains there, the ways we can, we can stimulate and arouse and awaken that profound dormant love. But it comes from the idea that people lived before us. Here specifically we're talking about the Ovis, the forefathers, the patriarchs, who are, who are Merkava, Hein Hein Merkava, completely bottle. It's hard to imagine, but we always want to get the picture the Torah tells us of what's the perfect type of human being. Entire life, you're just the arms and legs, the eyes and ears, the mouth of godliness in this world. As Chesed Atzilis told Hashem once Avram was born, what do you need me? Avram is doing my job. To that extent, we need to aspire as much as possible that we too should not just have our own agenda, but we should be the arms and legs, the channels that channel divine energy into this world, that our arms, our legs, our mouths, our minds, our hearts, all our faculties are expressing what the purpose of our lives are, the higher calling for which we were created. We become a chariot to the divine. And with that, my friends, we conclude this episode of My Life Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Please join me and I look forward to your questions. Everyone should have a continued celebrating a very powerful Chedesh Cheshman, taking the energy of Tishrei, transforming this month. And may be, this, be the month, just as the Bayesh Lishin was completed, the month when the Bayesh Lishin, the third Bayesh Amigdash, the permanent one, will be rebuilt in Yerushalayim and we will be able to celebrate in the fullest sense the Geula Amitis Vashleinu. Thank you so much. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.